All right, we are live. <laughs> Good morning, everyone, on this lovely Saturday morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are streaming from. This is Stock Talk, episode 24. We're going to be talking more about the SVB bank crisis, which has now spread to other banks. Uh, First Republic Bank stock has absolutely cratered. We are also going to talk about a stock Daniel has started a very small position in, and we're going to have a fun conversation there. As always, take conversations from the chat. If you are watching the recording, uh, we miss you when we go live once a week, so always feel free to try to hop in the live, and we'll take stocks that you are suggesting. As I always like to start out, Daniel, how are you doing? You are still in Asia, as we know from your uh, tagline there. Uh, good night to you, sir. Yeah, I'm doing good. We made it to Bali yesterday, so we are in Bali now. Bali, Indonesia. Great time, man. It's really warm. It's fun. Just got back from dinner and uh, ready to talk about what's been going on. Yeah, definitely. So we don't talk a lot about macro here. We definitely like just buying individual stocks and ignoring what's going on. But I think it's a little bit impossible not to at least recognize some of the movements going on with the Fed, their balance sheet. What are the, what are some of the things you're seeing, Daniel? I know you've been researching this. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely an interesting time right now. <laughs> Um, basically what, what's been happening is after SVB went under and then Signature Bank, I feel like there's a lot of panic in the banking industry and especially down in the U S I don't know if it's the same for up here in Canada, but it seems like down in the U S a lot of people were going to their smaller regional banks if they were banking with like a smaller, you know, um, banking company essentially, and trying to take out deposits to put them into the more secure banks like JP Morgan, Bank of America, you know, what the big, the big boys out there. And, uh, this is causing a lot of panic, especially in the regional banks. Like I, I think it was first horizons or something you said it's down Not first, like Republic. there was regional banks dropping first republics. Yeah. Um, there was regional banks dropping, you know, like 50 plus percent in one day because of how much panic is going on out there. And it's just wild. And I think that this panic is spreading basically across the entire banking industry right now, which I don't really think is rational or logical. Because if you think about it, let's say everyone goes and takes money out of the regional bank. People don't hold cash in their mattress, right? Like people want to have their, like that's just inconvenient as heck. So if people are taking their money out of these smaller regional banks, where are they going to put it? Most likely in a large bank like JP Morgan or Bank of America. So to me, it's interesting to see these larger banks selling off with the regional banks when there's a pretty strong argument that the larger banks are going to benefit from what's currently happening. So it's just, that's why I think it's kind of just sector-wide panic. I think people are just like done with the banking industry right now. And at least from what I'm seeing on Twitter, people are saying like banks are uninvestable at this point, which I don't necessarily agree with. Yeah, I mean, obviously banks aren't going away, and I agree with you that the pendulum swing here is a little bit too much. I do want to call out that the major banks, like, they're not doing terribly relative, I'm talking about their stock price, relative to the regional banks. So First Republic Bank, I think it's down 70 or 80%. It's cratering. JP Morgan, it looks like it's down. I got it up on my screen right now. Maybe about 12%. So that is a huge move for a big bank. Um, so yep. all banks are moving down, but... Yeah, as you said, it's definitely disproportionately affecting the regional ones. Something I learned this week is the different roles all these banks play. So I am no banking expert. However, in a healthy economy and ecosystem, you actually do need these regional smaller banks since they provide a lot of liquidity to smaller businesses. There are a lot of fears here outside of just a regular bank run. So for instance, if we role play a world where there's only these big four ma major banks, that is not a happy scenario for the economy or even where the Fed or likely even where those little banks or sorry, where the big banks want to be. The regional banks in the ecosystem are really important. And yeah, it's a little upsetting to see people lose a lot of faith in the banking system. I think the Fed made the right decision by stepping in. And I'm honestly confused as to why banks like FRC, First Republic Bank, are still dropping on the news that all their depositors are backstopped. Like you said, Daniel, it just seems like a lot of mistrust and investors, of course, invest on having a realistic view of the future and betting on that growth. The future for banks after this is incredibly uncertain, or at least I feel comfortable saying that. And as someone, I don't own bank stocks, I know you do, so I might have a different view on this. This is actually filling the reasoning why I don't like to invest in banks because they are just subject to a lot of like macro 
influences and things that I personally don't understand. And whenever stuff like this happens, it just makes me, it just reminds me that I have no clue what's actually going on. We can talk about it at a high level, but it's different. I would say, yeah, like if you are not comfortable or don't understand, it's definitely not for you. Um, Warren Buffett actually has historically said that banks can offer incredible returns. They can be amazing investments because they're highly profitable businesses, but they require a lot more due diligence and understanding of how banks make money and, you know, who are their deposit bases? How are they investing those deposits? How secure is everything? How much liquidity do they have? So it's just like a lot more analysis you need to do to figure out like which banks are actually solid. And, um, I mean, I actually was watching one of our live streams or one of our first ones where we were asked about Signature Bank and I'm going to post a clip. It's actually uploaded on our YouTube channel. I just need to post it. Maybe I'll do that today or tomorrow. But in the live stream, I was like, this bank is growing so fast that it's like a red flag for me because banks can, you know, there's so many different types of loans that people want. So a, a, if a bank doesn't have what's the right word for this? Some self-control, I guess. Then they could just loan anybody anything at like awful terms, take on this massive amount of risk, their loans go bad, and then it's just a bad situation. Um, so some banks do that. Or, you know, their customer base and their deposits are made up of unprofitable businesses that are losing money. So deposits are constantly going down, which is what happened to SVB. So that's what I mean. Is like, you got to take a look at a few different things. But what I'm seeing right now is you know, like the Canadian banking system is so solid and so secure. I was reading that in the financial crisis, not a single Canadian bank went under, whereas hundreds of U.S. banks went under. So it's like our banking I'm, system. I'm waiting for you to say something about EQB. Oh, it's coming. It's coming. But uh, that's why I love Equitable Bank. <laughs> it's one of the reasons. Yeah, straight up. But it's uh, it's just interesting because here's the Equitable Bank comment. It was coming. Um, that stock is down, I think it's something like 20-ish percent off of all of this news going on right now. And the company just reported earnings a few weeks ago. The earnings were incredible. And I believe that the stock is now trading for under a six price to earnings ratio while it's growing net income and everything at 12 to 15% per year. And it's projecting to continue doing that this year. So what I've also been looking at with uh, the banks that I own, especially the small ones like Equitable Bank, is I've been paying attention to what are the insiders doing? Because they're on the ground, you know, like if they're buying shares in these smaller regional banks, like if I see a CEO buying, you know, a bunch of shares while their stock is down, then they probably have a pretty good idea that like their bank is fine. So I've been paying attention to, okay, which banks are the insiders buying more shares of right now? Because they most likely know things are solid. And of course, Equitable Bank is one of them. Uh, an insider just bought $70,000 worth on Friday, I believe it was. So insiders are starting to buy shares over there. So the, I don't know, man. It's like I, I definitely agree. The, val the valuations are better than they were before. Obviously, right? The financials are yeah. stayed the same. Uh, that that makes sense. So maybe before we transition to something else, let me just take a a little gut punch to the banks here. So, as an investor looking at banks, and Daniel, please fact check me on this. The reason why I am not crazy about banks as a business, and I will go out of my comfort zone and try to describe the business here, is as an investor, you buy the business. You want the business to make money. You want it to have a moat. Obviously, banks have a moat with their charter, even though there's lots of other banks. But, you know, you, you and I just can't go and create a bank, right? Like there is some red tape there. So right away, that's good. I think what sketches me out as an investor is let's look at the FDIC. Their job is to watch these banks. Before this banking failure happened, they actually didn't know that this was really happening. This was a shock to the system, even though some VC firms and there was even that Seeking Alpha article out, people are quoting now that we're sounding the sirens basically on SVB Bank saying, just pointing out all the things that could lead up to an event like this, who their depositors were, you know, everything we've already talked about there. And the way the bank works is you give them their money, you're actually giving the bank a loan. So they're obviously taking that money and then reloaning it out, leveraging it, all that stuff, which they are like allowed to do, by the way. So the whole business of the banks, they take your money, they invest it elsewhere, they try to get a return on that money. And then for the depositors of that bank, they need to keep a certain amount of liquidity. So in theory, it's a trust system. Yep. I am just questioning how that's going to work moving forward unless the regulators change their rules. So for example, I'm going to take a David Sachs view from the All In uh, podcast, which I like very much. Banks should have all their assets in liquid 
assets. They should be moving day to day. If they have depositors putting in funds, they shouldn't be allowed to just take all those funds and put it into like 10, 30 year notes because then that money is all tied up. I think that there should also be real time viewing of a bank's balance sheet. It's 2023. I don't understand why we can't just have a live sheet so everyone knows even the fed like what is up with this bank at any point in given time because how are consumers of a bank as well as investors supposed to really deeply analyze these i know i know you're an investing genius daniel but most of us here aren't and if the fdic can't do it and they're not regulated to put out that data real time enough i just don't see that there's enough for me to even look at to feel confident in this um so yeah, more, I mean, more more for you i guess i'm, I'm going to be looking elsewhere well, yeah, I mean, what it comes down to is exactly what you said. It's uh, like at the end of the day, it is a faith-based, trust-based system. So basically, banks operate off the assumption that everyone is not going to need all of their money at once. Like the average person doesn't just want to take out 100% of their cash at once. Like everyone's just not going to do that. So banks operate on faith that, you know, people just aren't going to do that. And then they keep a set amount of liquidity set aside where it's like, you know, if X amount of people do want to withdraw their money, then they have the liquidity to meet those demands. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it, that might make some people uncomfortable. And that's just uh, totally fair. But uh, I think banks are absolutely necessary for the economy. I don't think like the economy or modern economy would function without banks. Like I couldn't get a mortgage. Who would I? I, I, I agree. Yeah, I think the conversation is more about the investability of them. But I do agree with you. Banks are necessary. I think this was largely a regulation failure in my eyes. Yeah, so I have a screenshot here. I would, yeah, I have a screenshot that I would like to share. Um, sorry, I was on my phone. I was finding the screenshot. I was still listening to you, though. You're good. <laughs> just, you know, just want to... Yeah, if anyone in the chat is mad at Daniel for looking at his phone, let us know. Uh, but... <laughs> Dude, it's fair. Shelby's fair mad. She's like, fair enough. fair enough, bro. Hey, bud. All right. That's not the right thing. Where am I? Well, you are sharing your screen successfully. I can tell you that. I see the blue bar chart. So what's going on here? All right. So this is a report, ironically, from JP Morgan. Anyways, this is about the SVB situation. And this says, the irony of SVB is that most banks have historically failed due to credit risk issues. This is the first major one I recall where the primary issue was a duration mismatch between high quality assets and the deposit liabilities. As shown below, being flooded with deposits from fast money VC firms and other corporate accounts at a time of historically low interest rates might have been more a curse than a blessing. And that's, I totally agree. Like, this was such a weird situation because SBB was growing so fast and it was almost a situation where it's like, honestly, their growth kind of killed them because they took a wrong assumption that they were going to continue getting so much venture capital money and that was going to make all of their deposits okay. Then the VC market dries up. Then they're essentially the income of deposits stops. And then they saw this massive rise in deposits with all the VC money. And what they did is they took that money and they invested it in long duration assets that they can't sell. So then when the VC money stopped and all these businesses that they their deposit customer base starts losing money and then they need access to their deposits, but they're like, oh, hey, it's in these long-term assets that we can't sell. Yeah. Well, liquidity crunch, liquidity crisis. Like that's what happened. So, so, so it is more than just the growth. Like I, I I do agree with you that like part of the story here is they were growing so fast. It leads them to make decisions like this. But to me, it comes down to two things. The second thing you talked about, which was mismanagement of their funds, looking at the duration of when their depositors would need to take out versus the liquidity of where their investments were. That's what we were talking about before. Uh, so, yeah, exactly. And also right, regulators was the other half, but I don't know. Growth is not a bad thing, though, right? Like in theory, like I think that they could have grown and made smarter decisions with their money. Can you predict the Fed's raising rates higher than they've sure. done in decades? Probably not. So I'm not pointing my finger at them and saying you're the dumbest people right. ever. But I think that they failed, though. I the growth could have been okay. Like I, you were well, they failed. Their I, I miss what you said. No, I don't even think it was rates. I don't even think it was rates raising. I think it was, well, if you want to say VC funding stopped because rates raised, then sure. Oh, oh no, sorry. I'm but, saying the strategy that bank had for where they were putting the deposits, like that strategy shifted rapidly where the rate of return on a lot of the T-bills and things from the treasury they were buying, like really flipped as the Fed decided like, oh, whoops, we printed too much money. Now we're going to raise rates a lot. Not to give them an excuse, but like it changes your plan relative to like yeah. 2020, end of 2021, 2020. 
I think they were just operating under the assumption that the venture capital market was never going to slow down, which was an awful assumption to make. It was an assumption where they don't even consider the downside, and it ultimately led to the bank failing. Like, yeah, I'm I'm reading the chat now. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, there's some general ag agreement here. Do you have a prediction on what the uh, Fed's basis rate's going to be? I know this is very out of our ballpark. I don't either. I think the point being here is, I think no one knows. I think no one has any idea. I think Jay Powell's going to wake up. I think he's going to wake up in the morning and flip a coin. Like that's you know that's like that's how much I don't know. Yeah, and speaking of the Fed, I wanted to share this and get your opinion on it, Daniel. So everything we've talked about so far in the stream is banking crisis, why it happened. How should an investor view at this? Shared some of our viewpoints. The Fed also has opinions about this, uh, of course. So some things to like look at here, Daniel, is the Fed's balance sheet, some of the swap program that they have going on with the banks. They have opened up a lot of what I like to call financial engineering like portals to make sure that these banks have liquidity. Uh, we also see this showing up in the Fed's balance sheet, which I could bring up. So for the first time since they started uh, removing assets from the balance sheet, it went back up uh, partially from the SIVB. Not It was not a bailout because uh, it was just for depositors, but now also these banks are taking advantage of some of these swap lines and stuff. A any thoughts here, Daniel, on uh, what investors should be thinking about when we see numbers like this? Should we ignore it? Um, I, I ignore it, but a lot of people are not going to ignore this because basically whenever the Fed's balance sheet goes up, it means that they're essentially doing some sort of stimulus to the economy. The reason their balance sheet just went up is because they essentially just purchased all of SVB's assets. So to bail out, not really bail out the bank, but to fix the deposit issue and everything that was going on with SVB, I believe they took on all the assets and basically everything that the bank had, which is why all that stuff is now on their balance sheet, which is why the balance sheet went up again. But you're going to see people out there saying, this means the Fed is now doing quantitative easing again. This means stocks are going to rally, um, you know, like in interest rates are going to drop, blah, blah, blah. So All right. I don't know what's going to happen. This could be a one-off. You know, they're probably going to continue running off the balance sheet after this. I personally don't think they're going to continue doing stimulus. I think this was really just a one-off event, unless there's a lot more banking crisis things that happen that we just can't see yet. But um, logically, I think, I, I think that was a one-off and they're going to continue running off their assets. All right. Well, we will see what happens. As many of our viewers That's know, that totally <laughs> many of our viewers know who tune in every week, we are definitely value investors that look at individual stocks uh, as opposed to really making investment decisions based on the macro, although it is good to be aware. On that note, Daniel, rumor has it that you started buying a new stock. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah? It right. is. The, the awkward pause, again, and then that second second of like, crap, was I supposed to say that or was this private? Well, it's not private anymore. You want to run us through this? It will be a good conversation because I looked at the stock briefly once you told me, and I have a few little mixed feelings about it after my very deep four minutes of financial research on stock a lot. Uh, you've obviously done way more than me, so yes. you want to take, take it away and pitch this stock? Yes, yeah, so you know everything about the company. Dude, I spent four yeah, minutes. You know everything I'm, basically, um, I'm, an, I'm an expert. I know more than the CEO running the company. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Obviously, Jake. Okay, so... If you guys have watched this, if you guys have watched the streams, you know that I like very simple businesses. The more simple, the better I like it usually. Like like BAM. Um, uh, so this business. Sorry. There's exceptions to every rule. <laughs> BAM is not a simple one. Neither I'm is gonna, gonna this one's a simple one. Um this one is ATD. I'll share my screen. Um it is ATD.to. It's a Canadian company. I believe they trade on the OTC, but they're a massive, I think they're worth like 40 billion US. So let me just share this. Alimentation Kushtart. Now, what this company does is they own convenience stores and that's the business. That's what they do. So basically they have a massive retail or convenience store network all over the globe. They're primarily in the US, but they're in Canada, Europe. They're starting to expand into Asia, which I love. And they basically just take their profits and then invest it into more convenience stores. And if you take a look at this business, back in the year 2000, it was worth about 50 cents. Today, I believe it is a $60 stock. So it is up over 10,000% over the past 20 years. If you want to compare that to the SPY, let my internet just load really quick. Oh, it's been really slow right now. Sorry about that. This is going to work. Let me refresh. Having some choppy internet, apparently. Okay. Anyways. All right. That's enough of that. The 
the um the stock's been outperforming the spy massively like i believe over the past 20 years the spy is up something like 170 percent this one's up 10,000 percent jake you're also muted but it's just been absolutely dominating the spy and uh let's take a look at some of the financials i had the comparative spy i had the comparative spy up if you want me to show it quick but if not keep going my internet i think is a little better than yours i see the spy is up 200 160 eh, ish percent from 2000 this stock is up 11.5 thousand percent and has basically beaten the spy almost through every time period except maybe the past five or six years they're almost balanced but even with the dividend it looks like the stock is beating the spy aka the market yeah so you know they do have a little bit of ups and downs as well like you can see here in 2008 revenue went down till about 2009 then it grew and then here in 2013 revenue kind of top line or sorry went stagnant went down saw another massive boom and now we're in another massive boom so since this company is a convenience store company it also has gas stations so the revenue is a little bit exposed to what the price of gas is doing what's the percentage but there? it's basically sorry what what's the percentage there like is most of their business gas or is it just like 10 percent and their convenience is 90 i believe it's, i believe it's about 40 60 40 percent gas cool but yeah um this is their operating cash flow you can see that they do generate positive operating cash flow and then what they do with that cash flow is pay off debt buy back stock and then also pay out dividends it's a, it's a very shareholder friendly business so the reason like what sold me on this business was it's simple and i believe that they really really look out for shareholders i think that they are a very shareholder focused business and i will show you why so this came from their investor presentation for the full year of 2022 and this paragraph right here is just absolute gold for me so this says no matter the so first off let me backtrack a little bit this company once again owns convenience stores takes the cash flow from those convenience stores builds their network and acquires other convenience stores and then just expands all over the world that way so then going to this value creation second paragraph it says no matter the context to create value acquisitions have to be sorry Acquisitions have to be concluded at optimal conditions. Therefore, we do not necessarily favor store count growth to the detriment of profitability. In addition to acquisitions, organic development is playing an important role in the growth of our net earnings. We are focused on continuing to build and expand our network in key geographies where we can leverage our strengths and create value for the corporation and its shareholders. Um, that's just kind of their uh, strategy while staying true. While staying true to our customary financial discipline, all these elements and our strong balance sheet have contributed to the growth of our net earnings and value creation for our shareholders and other stakeholders, and we intend to continue in this direction. So basically, what I absolutely love from this paragraph here is that they do not favor store count growth to the detriment of profitability, and all of their acquisitions have to be done at optimal conditions. So basically, they do not chase top-line growth. Let's say, you know, they could go and buy thousands of convenience stores and they could pay, you know, premiums for all these convenience stores. It would boost the top line and top line investors would be like, amazing, great job. But the company is so focused on getting a strong return for their shareholders that they will not chase store count growth if they're not getting good returns on it. And then they're fine to just not chase that growth. And then for the time being, buy back more shares, pay out a dividend and protect shareholder value. They've acquired now more than they've acquired more than ten thousand convenience store locations over the past twenty years now, at a very successful ROCE and ROIC. So they're just very shareholder focused. And what I also love is it's founder led. The three founders. It's a, that was my that was my question actually. Yeah. So there's three founders of the business. Collectively, they own twenty percent of the company still. The largest shareholder is one of the founders. He owns ten percent. Then the other ten percent is between the other two. But they, it's founder-led, and um, yeah, they really protect shareholder value. Awesome. I mean, that, that was a great intro. So there you have it. Daniel, I believe, this is not financial advice. Do not follow our trades. That would be foolish. Has started a very small position in this stock. And that was one of the things I saw too, Daniel. Very uh, highly owned by insiders, which are co-founders. We love that. You and I are both co-founders of Stock Unlock. So got a lot of respect there. I'll just run you through a few of the quick things I saw about this business just for you to rebuttal, Daniel. Of course, this is me being an expert after looking into it for about four or five minutes. I saw that it was pretty low margin, not a terrible thing right off the bat, but this is not a high margin business like you see with uh, tech companies. That is somewhat expected for businesses like this. 
the good things is they do keep their margins somewhat consistent, so they're not flopping around too, too much. I also noticed that the company did have some debt. So if we pop open their uh, balance sheet here, you can see a lot of their liabilities are actually debt. Uh, their cash position has been going down slightly, but as you said, they do have positive operating cash flow. So I'm not really concerned about them running out of money when they could generate their own. What they, what they did is they repurchased a lot of shares. They repurchased yeah, more yeah. shares than they generated in uh, so, cash flow, which is yeah, why they so cash flow. You are walking into uh, some of the more positive notes. I'm, I'm not here to dunk on your uh, stock, even though I do love to do that, honestly. I love giving each other a hard time. So this yeah, is exactly what you're talking about, Daniel. They're using their cash flows to buy back shares, which is great. That is a great thing for shareholders. You own more of the business. We also see this on their dividends. So their dividend yield is actually pretty low. So I would not call this a you know, dividend. It is a dividend stop technically, but you know, the, the yield is low. Yeah. However, they are consistently raising that as the price goes up. And one of my favorite stats, historical yield on cost. This will apply to you, Daniel. If the stock price keeps going up and if they keep on paying their dividend, you might only be getting a 1% today. But if the share price doubles, then you go to 2%, right? So your yield on your cost that you bought at, I think is the more important metric here. It's an interesting stock, man. I yeah, doesn't yeah. get me super excited that it's inconvenience, but if they have a really good brand and consumers love them, someone in our chat actually said, I love Kushtard. So it's just a funny name. I'm from, a, yeah. we don't have these in New York. So when I hear Kushtard, I get immature and obviously think it's just kind of a funny phrase to leave it at that. But yeah, yeah so this, this is a cool one. Yeah, they... So as you said, the dividend yield right now is 1%, which doesn't get a lot of people, like, sorry, people excited. Um, but they're projecting to grow the dividend at 25% a year, which means it doubles every three years. And I believe if you take a look at our stock unlock chart, if you were buying this stock back in like 2002, you have basically a 100% yield on cost now, just because like how, how quickly they increase the dividends. And um, yeah, I just like it. I think... Technically, they did not start paying a dividend until 2005, but you are also technically correct. Even if you did buy a share then with no dividend payment, you can still do the yield on yeah. cost. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, you know, it's not a high margin business. It's like a Costco business. They have the economies of scale. They can keep their margins low and still generate, you know, four billion or whatever of operating cash flow a year. And they're using a lot of that cash flow to expand their network, improve their efficiencies, whatnot. What I also read that was interesting that I didn't even think about when I was researching the business today. So over in Europe, Europeans countries are seeming to really build out their EV infrastructure a lot more than North America. So what Kushtard is doing now is they are building out EV charging stations at their convenience stores. And you know how EVs take anywhere from like 20, 20 plus minutes to charge, let's say. So what Kushtard is seeing over in Europe right now is people will go and park their cars for 15 to 20 minutes, plug them in, and then naturally what they do is they go into the convenience store and spend money. So instead of filling up your car in 30 seconds to a minute, people are now spending more time at their convenience stores and spending, they've said like quite a bit more money, and they're going to start turning their convenience stores more into like an experience with the EV charging. So they're testing that out over in Europe, but if, you know, if North America does a bunch of EV charging and whatnot too, then I think that's pretty bullish. I didn't even think about that until I read the uh, 10K today. So I was like, sweet, makes sense. Yes. So I, I think the quick bullets from this one, Daniel started a small position. This is not financial advice. A founder-led and founder-owned company, which is great. They are shareholder-friendly, buying back shares and putting out a dividend. Their stock has been up until the right. They are growing. Some of the uh, not-so-great notes that we've talked about is they have a pretty decent debt load, even though they have positive cash flow, there is some debt there. The stock has not pulled back at all. So, you know, it never feels good buying the top, but in retrospect, you never know. And hopefully it keeps on going up until they're right. Daniel, thank you, for, Daniel <laughs> thank you for bringing this one to us. It's I don't own any stocks in the convenience place. I know we've talked about Canadian uh, supermarkets here and stuff. So if they have the brand and they're going to be out at the other stores, that's great. I find that's usually the hardest thing to figure out because... There are a lot of convenience stores out there and there's a lot of choice for consumers. So you obviously want to pick a very strong brand, someone that's continuing to innovate. I like what you said that they're growing their stores because I see that a lot of convenience stores here just seem stagnant. They're not changing much. So I think there's an opportunity there for companies that are still yeah. moving quickly and innovating, you, even in this space. You know, you have to innovate everywhere. Yeah. So another thing is in the US specifically, 
a lot of the convenience stores across the US are single, they're just a single convenience store. And there's not a lot of chains. Like I believe Kushtard said something like 15% of US convenience stores aren't owned by a major conglomerate. So they are focusing heavily on trying to acquire more convenience stores in the US, of course, at a good price though. They will not do it if they cannot get a good return on it. But they said there's a lot of consolidation that's going to happen over the future because in Canada, there's like three convenience store giants. And then in the US, there's like not that much. So yeah, it's going to be interesting. It's one that um, I just like it. I, I just really like companies that focus heavily on projecting shareholder value and growing shareholder value above everything else. And, uh, you know, the stock speaks for itself, how that's turned out for investors. Fair enough. Well, there you have it. I think that will close our analysis on, uh, let's see, ATD.TO, um, Elementation Kushtard Inc. So it's got 99 uh, stars on Stock and Lock, so maybe you could be the 100th and add it to your watch list. That's and right. do your own research, of course. I think there was another stock here, Daniel, so I will share my screen for this one. Whenever I start a stock position, and I'm not a financial advisor, so this is not advice, I'm just telling you what I like to do. I love to buy one to two shares of the stock, which I would do anyway, but as an initial position, I love to dollar cost average, unless if there's a rare situation, I'm not going to just dump all my money into one stock. Sorry, I did just see you bring up this comment. Do you want to touch this before we move on, Daniel? Or should I keep going? Sorry, which comment? The one I have up? Yeah. No, I'm just responding to comments while you do this, and then uh, cool. I'll type my responses. Cool, cool. Uh, good to know. So yeah, whenever you buy just a couple shares of a stock, what I find is it's a huge mental game. I like to buy shares and hold them long. So if you have any anxiety after buying the stock or if you feel uneasy, it's probably a sign that you need to do a little bit more research. I do have to say, Daniel, I do want to do a little bit more research on this stock. I felt I felt like eh, owning two shares. So what I'm about to present is actually research that you started. Am I sharing my screen? Did I do that correctly? I believe you are sharing your screen. Yes, you are. Oh, this is a dividend paying REIT. If you subscribe to Stop Unlock or have ever created an account, um, subscribers do get our monthly only newsletter, which our stocks were watching and encourage people to either put on their watch list or to potentially avoid just our own opinions. This was a stock that we shared maybe a month or two ago. This is a REIT. So if we go down here and read a little bit more about what they do, this company is headquartered in Colorado, a little bit over 2,000 employees, and they... Uh, they're focused on the ownership, operation, acquisition of self-storage properties located within various metropolitan statistical areas across the United States. So long story short, self-storage units. And yeah, the stock has seen a really big pullback. So not that it makes a ton of sense to measure things from the highs, but you know, it definitely has fallen from where it was before, trading about where it was back at the beginning of 2021. Market cap still only about $5.3 billion. You come here and look at their financials. You know, they obviously have a good amount of revenue growth here. Obviously for a REIT, you want to make sure that they're actually producing positive earnings, able to pay that back. That does look like it's checking out. Yeah. So the one thing that I've heard about um, self-storage REITs recently, I follow a guy on Twitter who is a big self-storage REIT investor. He owns a self-storage company all over the US and like they have properties everywhere. And basically what he said is that right now he's noticing their vacancy is going up. So people are not willing to pay for self-storage as much anymore. So I think that might be why the market is a little bit more bearish on NSA right now. But, uh, you know, I think, I still think the company looks pretty solid. I'm not noticing any like huge red flags personally. I'm really happy you brought that up, Daniel, because I am wrestling with this thought. During a recession, would self-storage usage go up or down? And I have two competing thoughts. The most obvious one is, well, it goes down because people have less money. And if they're paying for a self-storage unit that they can't afford, they're not going to pay that anymore and either just stop paying it and then they auction off their stuff or take their stuff out. The counter thought to this is during a recession, people need to downsize, they need to sell stuff, and the cost of a storage unit is way less than their property or their second or third apartment or things like that. So maybe this is too small of a population that will be in a situation to already like be rich and downsized. But another narrative I was playing in my head is you could actually see usage go up or offset people leaving it because you have another group of consumers who's actually downsizing other properties and stuff and going into a cheaper temporary self-storage unit. Um, this is obviously all just hypothetical. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm curious if you have thought about this a lot in terms of if we will continue to see 
those vacancy rates go up, as you were saying before, or if as the recession deepens, we might see a counter effect there where people are selling things, downsizing and leaving it in storage. I have no idea. I think the best idea you could do is just go take a look at what happened in 2000 and 2008. Did people, you know, leave self-storage massively or was it like a 5% dip? Is it something to be concerned about? I mean, I don't know if the future, or sorry, I don't know if history is going to repeat itself, but that's like the closest I could ever think of. Go take a look at what happened during the last two recessions. Yeah, fair enough. I think I'm going to come back next week with a little more information here. So staying honest with the chat, we're always learning and growing together after buying, I think it was two shares of the stock this week. I'm feeling like a little iffy on it. I want to do a little bit more research. And again, this is a great way to kind of test your gut when you're getting into positions. Uh, not that this is financial advice, but it makes me feel a lot calmer just not going heavy into new positions and kind of like tiptoeing into it. I'm going to look into that, Daniel. So we'll talk about that next week. Uh, a little deeper conversation uh, there. And I'm not even looking at the right stock right now. Because yeah, the question for me is it's like that could happen. Is it temporary? And if it does, are they able to maintain that dividend payment? You know, it's 5% starting to look pretty nice. But I, I know that there's other, you know, a lot of other REITs out there with the falling stock price, high, higher dividend yield. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, yeah, let me know what you think, because that is an interesting stock. As yeah. you said, we wrote a, new, a whole newsletter on NSA. So it's definitely when I'm watching it. Yeah. Awesome. When I'm watching yeah. Okay, we got... That probably closes off conversation on that. Yeah. So we got a question here from KRK. I assume this is Kirk. That's how... That, that's what this is supposed to be. Anyways. Daniel, what are your thoughts on recent EMP.A earnings despite, I'm going to remove your screen, despite the loss due to cyber attack sales were comparatively less than in the inflationary environment? Thoughts? Yeah, I went through the earnings. Um, it wasn't anything incredible, to be honest. Um, I still hold my shares, but like I wasn't blown away by those earnings. I also didn't like to see that their operating cash flow dropped significantly. That was uh, not what I was expecting to see at all. So... I haven't read the transcript yet. I'm going to read the transcript, try and figure that out a little bit more. But honestly, like I've been looking at ATD more and I'm almost wondering if ATD is just a better business. And if I come to that conclusion for sure, then, and I want to add more to ATD, then the stock that I would probably trim down or cut to do so would probably be Empire because they're kind of in similar, they're not totally similar. Like Empire is a grocery chain. And uh, ATD is convenience stores. But in my mind, I'm like, oh, same business. I can understand it like that, even though they're not. But uh, I just think ATD's historical performance and how focused they are on shareholder value with the founders leading the company, everything. Like, I think I'd feel more secure and less worried if my money wasn't there instead of Empire. So I haven't made that decision yet. But uh, just to be transparent, that is what is on my mind right now. Founder-led businesses is a very... So, yeah, that's my thinking on Empire. Dude, I, I've been noticing it so much more in my investing. Like if there's insiders that own a good chunk of the business and I see them consistently adding, then I'm like, sign me up. Cause I, they like, I just noticed that they tend to perform better, a lot better. I am like itching to plug Airbnb, uh, which I will not do more than that. Founder led company, <laughs> by the way. Um, anyways, are you looking into any industrial REITs? Daniel, correct me if I'm wrong. Industrial REITs are more, uh, business, uh, level occupancy in terms of other big companies, renting out spaces. I have been a little bit iffy on these recently because of the vacancy rates, work from home policy, and just living in New York City, generally seeing companies really not making the full transition back. Like some are, some aren't. Do you have opinions on this, Daniel? I know that you've done a few live streams looking into the best REIT stocks. Is Obviously, a... REITs fall into a few categories. So industrial better or worse than a self-storage one right now. What are you thinking? Um, industrial... Industrial is not office. If you're talking about office space, industrial is like, think about an Amazon warehouse. That's industrial real estate. Okay, got it. So it's, it's, it's B2B, not where the workers are working. Well, I mean, technically in a warehouse. Okay. I might not have worded that properly, but, but yeah, you are on the same page there. Yeah. So my overall thesis with industrial real estate is as e-commerce grows, industrial real estate demand will grow. Um, and yeah, I own one industrial REIT, which is Dream Industrial. And uh, they're not an exciting business, honestly. Like they're growing eight to nine percent per year, pay about a five percent dividend monthly. It's like I think it'll do great long term. Is it my favorite investment? No. Do I like it? Yeah. I think it's cheap enough for me to continue holding. If it goes up to like eighteen or twenty, probably would uh, trim it. But 
at the valuation today, I'm happy to own it. I think industrial real estate is going to be fine long-term. And uh, yeah, their vacancy rates are still at 0.1%. They have a 99.9% occupancy rate at Dream Industrial. So their business is doing just fine. There's nothing nothing really to worry about there, at least not yet. Um, I'm not seeing any red flags. At least. Yeah. All right. Um, next question here. This person asked a couple times, Daniel, your favorite stock in 2019 was Canadian Solar. I, I think... Uh, I don't think it was my favorite stock, but uh, am I still bullish? No, I am not. This, well, we, we you know, over the past few years, I've learned a lot as an investor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, and over the I'm past few years, say, I feel like I've learned a lot. I'm going to mute myself. We're doing the uh, the time lag, and we're both waiting for each other to talk. So I'm going to shut up. Got it. I'll just be quick. So yeah, over the past few years, I feel like I've learned a lot. Um, I thought this one was cheap because it was selling for about book value, had a low P.E., then I learned that the earnings for this business are not consistent. It's a very cyclical business, low margin, and it uh, doesn't have a cash flow statement, which is a big red flag for me. So I am not, uh, I'm not touching that one anymore. Yep, that's what I was going to say too. When we looked at that in the past, it's like no cash flow statement was like a big killer for us because like how are you supposed to look at it? Yeah, I, the, China, the China things too. I won't own a this. Yeah, I won't own a business at this point in my investing career if it doesn't have a cash flow statement. It's just like that's. You can fudge net income to basically be whatever you want. And uh, yeah. so who knows what they're doing. Okay. And thank you for all these live comments. If you have any questions for us or stocks or things you'd want us to look at, please drop them in the live chat. It's always great seeing you guys come back every week. Uh, appreciate the support. Can you see any here, Daniel? Uh, oh, did you see that Michael Burry comment? I I'm holding back. I am like not a fan of the Michael Burry type <laughs> figures. I think he has a very like chicken little skies falling attitude and whenever you try to predict the market you literally have a 50 50 chance of getting it right every time because it's a binary outcome so like people follow this guy like he's some savant that can like predict the markets and he's just so wrong all the time anyways happy to talk about this but i'm going to probably bite my lips since i don't think anything he says has any merit or value on anything debate yeah i mean <laughs> i think michael burry is kind of like a you know broken clock is right twice a day I mean, that guy is just perma-bearish, it seems, and I think that's just no way to live. I think it's a lot more healthy for you to be more of an optimist in life. And, you know, I mean, to be fair, his most recent tweet that everyone is talking about, he's basically saying that what we're currently seeing with the Fed and JP Morgan and these larger banks bailing out smaller banks, it's basically what happened in 1907. And when that happened, I, I believe it was something like three weeks later, the market bottomed and then like a new bull market started. So he was basically tweeting like, this looks a lot like what happened in 1907, and if so, then things could be bottoming right now. And uh, that was basically his tweet: was him now calling that the stock market's going to bottom soon after being bearish. You're calling it, you're going to be right for years. Yeah, it's just crazy. Oh, yeah, you'll be right eventually. <laughs> I feel like the media paints this guy in a light where it's just oh, so cool. Called the 2008 crisis like made billions of dollars. Like he's walking into the locker room, just like beating his chest and stuff, like. All like the monkeys are like going crazy. I just, I just think everything he says, there's too many eyes on it. Like he, he could be right, but again, look at his past tweets. I think he's been trying to call things for a while. Yeah, I, like, like you have to give him credit. He did, like, he did get 2008 right, and he bet big, and he won big. But since then, I might be ignorant here because I honestly have not looked into this too much. I follow the guy on Twitter whenever his Twitter is active, and like, I don't know, a lot of the stuff he says just like has not come true recently. And in my opinion, I don't think there's that much to worry about. And I think it's just not a good way to live is to always be looking for things to worry about and like just buy good businesses and hold them for 30 years, man. It's a lot easier. So you, would never, for... you would never get a job at Hindenburg for short selling research. I mean, if I got, if I was hired by a company to go and find bad businesses to short, I could give you a list, but uh, <laughs> I wouldn't want that to be my job where it's like, okay, I have to find crappy companies, you know, and go short them. But I've seen a lot of crappy companies that I, if I had to short, I would, but I, I don't short. So, so this is funny because maybe there's two types of investors here. People don't talk about a lot like pessimistic and optimistic investors, because you could do well going on both sides, right? Oh, doom, gloom, the sky is falling. I'm going to short these stocks like and profit off of people losing, or obviously the other side of businesses are growing. Capitalism is great. There's prosperity and opportunities in the market. I'm definitely an optimist. I've personally never shorted anything or bought puts, but you know, like you, we have definitely talked about stocks on this channel. I think 
one that might be good to talk about right now is Honest Company. So we have talked about that company a lot. We've warned people not financial advice about the financials of that company a lot. And they dropped this week. I believe they released earnings. I'm not sure if you've taken a look at that. I have not. I'm just going to see if we have the most recent report. So unfortunately, we do not have the most recent report yet. Oh, wow. This stock has been continued greater. Yeah, we so we can't really take a deep look at their most recent report, but a quick highlight or analysis of this business is it's just a, it's just a cash burning business. They don't have cash flow. They're losing money. And, uh, you know, that just can't last forever. And when you're in an environment where money is more expensive, it means they're going to have to sell their stock, dilute, or they're going to have to raise debt at a very high interest rate, which is going to kill cash flow even more and bring them further away from profitability. So it's not a good spot to be in right now, especially to be a money losing company that's not close to profitability. It's a very risky spot. Yeah, I'm trying to pull up there. Same with Beyond Meat, same with Tattooed Chef, same with Elite. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to bring up some of their earnings now from their investor relations page, but not having too much luck. Which is also not a good sign, right? Like they're not really advertising it too much. Yeah. Um, This is a funny comment right here about Michael Burry. Michael Burry has predicted 10 of the last two downturns. (laughs) Uh, That's right. That is, that, that is absolutely right. That sums up my thoughts. Keith says, you did some interesting videos on Adobe. Has it got closer to being a buy or have you already invested? Low insider ownership, by the way. Yeah, um, I do own shares of Adobe. I bought Adobe after they announced their Figma deal. I believe I got my shares around 278. I thought that the stock was looking very cheap back then. I have not touched that position since I bought it. And uh, I am not planning on doing anything with it. I'm just going to hold it. I looked at their earnings. I thought earnings were good. I think Adobe is probably, if I had to put a number on it, I would say Adobe is probably slightly below fair value right now after their most recent earnings report. But I think that it's probably pretty close to fair value. Um, That's just my opinion. I think Adobe for me is probably worth around 23 to 25 times free cash flow. And I think it's around 22 to 23 right now. So the max I would personally pay for it is uh, 25. Just that, again, that's just me. Do not copy what I would do. But uh, I think that's about fair value for Adobe. Dude, go buy it. You're up big. I did not I did not go on that boat. Yeah, that was like the typical just like they reported the Figma deal and the stock freaking tanked. And it's like, this is Adobe we're talking about. Like it's one of the best software companies in the world dropping that much it was trading for like 16 times cash flow growing 15 or 13 percent a year i was like that's just cheap like that's just silly so i yeah that's when i bought it uh speaking of things that aren't cheap i did i got too curious i did find honest earnings and i think very quickly daniel this is a great use case where we talk with chat live chat all the time how do you find good stocks okay but how do you avoid bad stocks i think that's a more interesting conversation. So just super quickly to remind everyone where this stock price has gone over time. This is now a penny stock. It IPO'd and has literally hit the floor. When you think the losses can't get worse, they do. Uh, This is not a bank. This is just a regular company that cannot make any money. And you can see this very quickly. This is their latest earnings release. So right off the bat, some like weird things going on here is it looks like their balance sheet has flipped a lot. So they technically only have 30K less assets. But if you look at that, it's because their inventories are going up a lot, which means that they're sitting on more and more product. They're taking on debt. There's a lot of talk of debt facilities in here. Uh, You could see that they did some financial engineering and made the liabilities match the assets. I would actually say upon farther inspection, this balance sheet does not look super healthy. And for a company that's supposed to be growing, their revenue actually declined year over year. They made less profit on less revenue and had a greater loss, greater loss per share. They're taking, they're diluting shareholders massively. Their share account is going up. This is just one of those businesses where I can't even find one good thing about it. The only good thought I might have here, Daniel, is if the stock gets cheap enough, it might get bought for its debt or for someone else to take in the brand. I personally would not invest in one-time things like that. And yeah, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts. Let me know if you want me to reshare those earnings. Yeah. Um, so I've been rereading The Intelligent Investor. And one of the pages I read recently, I never caught this in like my first read-throughs, but Benjamin Graham says in the book that if a business is losing money, then it's not worth book value, which is something that I've been saying on our channel. 
Um, because you got to think about it. Like if a business is losing money, then over time, it's book value is going to go down. And if it doesn't become profitable ever, then the book value is going to zero or negative. And that's what I mean is, so when I take a look at a company like Honest or Beyond Meat or Tattooed Chef, I'm literally like, you could not pay me to own that stock because exactly. <laughs> I think like I wouldn't buy it for book value. I wouldn't buy it for 50 bucks because when you take a look at that business, like when you take a look at the stock, like, okay, I'm buying this business. It's like, what am I buying? I'm buying probably a debt-ridden company that is in some serious financial stress and is losing millions of dollars. And like, is that something I want to own? Tens of, mil tens of not, millions of dollars. Yeah. Like outside of the stock market, like I try to ask myself these questions as if I was actually going to buy the business and own it personally. And it's like, no, <laughs> yeah. not at all. And uh, maybe we can find another comment as we close this one up. But to add to what you're saying, in addition to looking at the book value, peel back the covers a little bit there, right? This company is reporting on their legit SEC filing that they have equal assets and equal liabilities. Upon farther inspection, their assets, although it looks like they're staying the same, is actually due to a very high increasing inventories and accounts receivable as they are losing uh, assets elsewhere. So I think it's worth it as well to take a little deeper look. Don't just take the assets value at face because they will show you the breakdown in the 10KQ or a 10Q and stock and lock shows this as well. So just be careful out there. Companies will try to massage their financials to make it look better because at the end of the day, they're trying to sell you their stock, sell the shareholders, which is fine in the natural market. Just don't be the consumer that sold a crappy product that's used or refurbished, not correctly. Hey, good analogy there. That's right. Okay. Um, we've we've had a lot of people ask about Tyson. Um, quite a few people actually. So, is that the vacuum company? I don't know what I don't know what this is to be honest. Oh no, I think I'm confused that with a Dyson. Yeah. Uh, if people who are already looking at Tyson, please drop your thoughts on this in the chat. We love to crowdsource uh, investment knowledge here. I'm also going to drop our free Discord link. If you guys aren't in our Discord yet, it is completely free, and we are continuing the conversations from the live streams there. And we'll love to see you. I'm going to drop that link. Yeah, so this is a foods products company. Um, frozen food refrigerated products company is headquartered in Arkansas. 142,000 employees. It's a huge company. So yeah, I believe they like sell products at you know grocery stores and whatnot. 3.28% dividend. Looks like it has negative free cash flow. Earnings yield is high though, so that's a huge discrepancy there. All right, what do our insights say? See, negative free cash out of five. Growing revenue at 8%. Um, financial health, lot of cash, buying back shares. Debt to EBITDA is low. Lots of intangibles. Revenue grew. So revenue grew, but gross profit declined. Operating income, net income, operating cash flow. Every cash flow all declined. So revenue is up, but every profitability metric is down. So you said and, that we're uh, buying back shares and they pay a dividend, yeah. but it looks like their free cash flow is going down. But you also said they have a lot of cash. So I, I know you're walking into this anyways, but very curious where that cash is coming from. Well, we can take a look. Let's take a look. I love the new charts so much. Those charts you're seeing above are a pretty new addition to Stock Unlock. Obviously, we're the co-founders and add new features and value all the time. So if you don't have an account. You're missing out. Okay, so revenue is at an all-time high. Okay. Let's take a look at cash flow. Let's see cash flow quick. Okay, so their operating cash flow. Looks like back here in 2015, they issued a lot of debt. Oh, five billion of debt. Their operating cash flow has always been positive. It's looking like it's declining. Their investments in property, plants, and equipment are going up, which means that their cash flow is now down. They spent a billion dollars buying, sorry, a billion paying off debt, 580 million buying back stock. So their cash has got to be declining. Yeah, I actually just looked at that. And it looks like their cash is plummeting, actually, even relative to its debt. Yeah, so cash is going down. It was 3 billion, now it's 654 million. Um, $7.8 billion in long-term debt as well. Yeah, so what I would want to know is, well, let's just take a look at operating cash flow. So cash from operating activities, trailing 12 months. <clears throat> so if I were seriously going to look at the stock, 
I'd want to know why is this happening? Why is operating cash flow going down so much? It's dropped 50% basically in a year. At the same time, as investments in property, plant, and equipment are, this is actually increasing. So they went from 1.2 billion to 2 billion. This is a double whammy against cash flow, which means their free cash flow has absolutely plummeted and now it's negative. So they went from 3 billion free cash flow to negative 51 million. At the same time, as they are also buying back a lot of shares and now their cash position is basically gone. And they're paying so, the dividend still. Like, is this yeah. dividend at risk potentially? If the cash flow doesn't come back, then yeah. Like, again, their operating cash flow is going down. So this is not a good trend. Is this going to continue? I would want to know that. And then this is also not a good trend. When your CapEx is going up at the same time as your cash flow is going down, it's not like the best recipe. So I would have some serious questions there. And then, yeah, like if free cash flow stays negative, then I don't know how this dividend is going to be paid. So basically something for me to be interested, I would need a solid answer that all of this is going to change and very soon, because again, they don't have a lot of cash left. They have 650 million, which does not cover the dividend over the next year. Yeah, go check out the uh, insider transactions tab and get rid of grants. Uh, insider transactions, grants. All right, and from the dropdown, uh, we also just added this. So in the dropdown, you can uncheck grant. Okay. So yeah. Sell, 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 sell. Yeah, so insiders are selling. I don't know, like it just... It just doesn't look like a very attractive business to me. And like, how much was the cash flow previously? It used to be super high. It, it's one of those things, and we say this all the time, like in investing, there are thousands of stocks for you to pick from. So where you end up a lot of the time, just some businesses are okay, some are meh, but where you almost always are is, well, there's better choices elsewhere. So that's, you know, not financial advice, kind of what I feel, just getting a little top-down look at this. I'd also want to see if they're trying to expand you know, Daniel, maybe they're spending a lot of money investing into expansion or things that we're not really just seeing on the surface level financials. So I, I do want to say there is a real reason why that could be happening. So to, yeah, it's not an immediate write-off, but it just doesn't look good. Yeah, I agree. It's not an immediate write-off, but like I have quite a few questions, you know, like there, if I, again, if I was seriously going to look into this business, I would go download their 10K, their 10Q, and I would go and take a look at all of those metrics, the operating cash flow, CapEx. Why is cash flow, operating cash flow going down? Why is CapEx up? Like, what is their plan for their balance sheet now that their cash is run out? Well, it's not run out, but it's low relative to its history. Like, it's pretty low right now. And um, so, yeah, I would just uh, try and get those questions answered. It doesn't look that... I mean, this is an interesting comment. Tyson chicken dominates U.S. market inflation and recession play. But the company is negative free cash flow right now. And its profits are all dropping. So if it's inflation resistant, then why is every profitability metric dropping right now? Gross margin, operating income, net income, operating cash flow, free cash flow. Like, typically an inflation resistant business will not see its profits drop with revenue. And um, Tyson is. So... Yeah, yeah, fair points. And um, it's always great talking with everyone. We've been going for over an hour now. If you are enjoying the stream, we would love for you to give us a thumbs up. Hit that thumbs up. Hit the bell icon if you want to be notified when we go live again. We do our best to go live every single week. Uh, Daniel, as you see on his label, has been traveling through Asia for the past couple months on a glorious backpacking trip. So our schedule has been a bit choppy. We'll always post these recordings after if you're just joining now. We started off the stream talking about a lot of the bank failures, SVB crisis, what the Fed's doing. Daniel also started a position in a new stock as well as I did. And we talked about those. Daniel, I always like to do this at the, around the hour mark. I know it is very late there in Asia. So what are we doing now? Are we sending you off to bed? Are you going to do one of those things where you say goodbye, but then we talk about one more stock? <laughs> no, I should go. I should really go. It's uh, it's getting pretty late. I should hit, I should go to bed. 
I got you. Well, again, thank you everyone for joining. Again, please hit that thumbs up, hit the bell icon. It really helps out our stream. We love going live with you guys every week. If you are not yet on stock and lock, we are two of the three founders of this business. Check out what we're building. It's for all investors, whether you're a newbie or a pro, and we're trying to grow. So if you're already on stock and lock and you like us, you like the site, please tell a friend to tell a friend. You know, let's spread the word. Most people still do not know about us. And with all that selling aside, Daniel, any last words or just a smile and wave? I got my finger on the end broadcast button. So finger on the trigger. <laughs> well, just thanks everyone for uh, tuning in. And hopefully we'll see you all again around this time next Saturday. And then I'm back from Asia on April 6th. It's under three weeks now. And uh, when I'm back, we can probably get back to a more set in stone, better timed stream. Not at 9 a.m. on a Saturday. So, yeah. We'll get to that whole thing. Easy, everyone. <laughs> Gary from Daniel South. See you next week. And oh, take care. This is the end of Stock Talk episode 24. Almost a quarter of a way to 100. Goodbye. <laughs> uh, end broadcast hit.